Thank you, Dana. Now will you reach for your Bibles and stand with me this morning as we prepare to read from God's Word. Pastor Bruce begins a new series this morning, starting called God's Got Questions. We're going to be reading Isaiah, so turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to read verses 25 through 31. This morning we're going to look at the question, Who is my equal? God's question to us, Who is my equal? And we find the text, Isaiah 40, 25 through 31. To whom then shall you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and by the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father, we come to you this morning and thank you for your word. We thank you that there is no one who is your equal. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to to learn from your word this morning and be with our pastors. He brings us the message that you have laid on his heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Zach said, we want to begin a brand new series today, a series that we'll do for about seven weeks, and uh, it's simply called God's Got Questions. In fact, this is a series, it's part two of a series that uh, we went through uh, about this time a year ago. And if you go through God's Word, what you find is there are several questions that God asks us as His children and even His creation. And, uh, and so last year in part one, we looked at uh, about six questions, and this time we're going to look at seven more questions. We'll be uh, a few questions in the New Old Testament, and then we'll progress to the uh, uh, New Testament as well. And so God's got some questions, and uh, we want to figure out, well, how are we going to answer those questions? What is your answer? Perhaps it may seem a little odd to you that God would ask us questions. After all, God already knows the answer to his questions, right? And since God's all-knowing, there's really no need for him to uh, ask a question. And yet what we discover when you look at these questions that God asks is that he's asking them not for his own benefit. Rather, he's asking these questions for for our benefit. In fact, coming up on the screen, you'll notice in your notes here the value of God's questions. They're for our benefit. And here's what I mean by that. They challenge what we believe. And they challenge us in how we behave. God's questions are are often pointed, as we're going to see throughout this series. God's questions are often very personal. In fact, what we will look at is we'll look at uh, some of these questions God is asking to one individual. He's coming to these individuals and asking them very personal and pointed questions. And and by application, those questions are being asked of us in a very pointed and personal way for the purpose of challenging us. What do I believe about God? 
about life, about myself in general. He's challenging us with these questions, uh, my, my conduct, my, my behavior in life. It's that one sportscaster, Ken Coleman, once said, he said, good questions inform, but great questions transform. And that's really the purpose of God's questions in His Word, is to transform our lives as followers of Him. He wants us to be different, having thought about these questions, having pondered them and having answered them in response to God. And so in this series, we're going to look at several questions that God asks in the Bible. So let's begin with God's question in Isaiah chapter 40 here. Some of you are old enough to remember the movie when it came out. It was 33, or I'm sorry, 38 years ago this summer now, 1975. The scariest movie to hit theaters in years. It spawned three or four sequels, and it began the annual summer blockbuster trend. The name of the movie was, is it up there? It's coming up. It's called Jaws. It was one of the first films directed by Steven Spielberg. How many have seen the movie Jaws? Raise your hand. You're dating yourself. You're aging yourself. It is perhaps the only movie ever made whose theme song is recognizable with only the first two notes. Duh, duh. You know, you got it. Jaws is the tale of this great white shark which inspires fear in this New England beach community of Amity Island. The shark's frequent forays into swimming sections of the beach leads to several horrific deaths in the reluctant shutting down of the popular tourist destination at the height of the summer season. No one is really certain of the magnitude of the sea animal that's terrorizing the beach waters and the economy of the community. And finally, the Amity police chief, uh, his name is Brody, he's played by Roy Schneider. He teams up with this oceanographer, Matt Hooper, who's played by a very young Richard Dreyfus at the time, to assist a rather professional uh, shark hunter named Quint, who's portrayed by the late British actor Robert Shaw. Anyways, in their second day of search of this savage shark, their futility feeds frustration. No shark has been seen anywhere. So Brody goes to the back of the boat, and if you've seen the movie, you may remember this, he begins just throwing buckets of dead squid into the water to attract the shark. And suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, this shark shows up and scares the living daylights out of these three people. They estimate this fish to be 25 feet long, 6,000 pounds. His jaws are enormous. Police Chief Brody bolts straight up as the shark submerges into the salty sea. The stunned lawman backs up slowly, step by step, into the pilot house. Shark hunter Quint stares at Brody, who is still staring at the stern. And finally, Brody speaks. And what he says is one of the most famous lines of movie history. You're going to need a... You got it. You're going to need a bigger boat. Listen, there are times in our lives when what we're facing just kind of blows away all our preconceived ideas and expectations. We may have had a hunch, an impression, an educated guess about what we were dealing with, what we're getting ready to face, but suddenly when we come face to face, with the truth, we are startled with a new and greater reality. We've never seen anything like this before. It's kind of like 
seeing the Grand Canyon or the Great Wall of China for the first time, it just kind of blows you away. All our former assumptions, our expectations about it are, are inadequate, and we just kind of have to say to ourselves, whoa, man, I'm going to need a bigger boat here. I wasn't expecting this. In Isaiah chapter 40, God is speaking to a group of people who have seven, suddenly discovered that they need a bigger boat in life. And what we're going to see is that only God himself is the bigger boat that we so desperately need. So let me kind of set the stage for God's question here in Isaiah 40 by first looking at Judah's problem. Number one, Judah's problem. They had wrong hopes and false fears. Wrong hopes and false fears. At this time in history, God's people were divided into two kingdoms. Uh, The nation of Israel was living in the northern kingdom, and the nation of Judah was living in the southern kingdom. And in Isaiah 40, God is speaking particularly to the people who are living in the southern kingdom of Judah. And like Brody in the movie Jaws, these people have suddenly discovered that they need a bigger boat in their lives. Why is that? What caused this predicament in their lives that was kind of bringing them to this conclusion? Well, notice Judah had two major problems. The first problem is this. The people of Judah were trying to live off hopes that were two sizes too small. They were trying to live off hopes that were two sizes too small. While all the nations around them were struggling to survive, the people of Judah kept saying to themselves, hey man, we can survive, we can make it. After all, we got the money, we have the military might, we have the brain power, we can outspend, we can outfight, we can outwit our way out of this challenge. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like how our country approaches things, approaches our own unique challenges and problems. We'll just outwit, we'll outpay, we'll outfight it all. No doubt the good citizens of Judah, they had some hope. The only problem was Judah had the wrong hope. These people hoped with a hope that was two sizes too small. And so when their money, when their military might, and when their mind power went down the drain, God allowed them to be taken captive by the Babylonians and into exile into the Babylonian country. And so what do you do when you're forced into a new situation? All of a sudden, man, their life is turned upside down. Their family is uprooted. They are moving, and they are entering into a new phase of life. So what do you do when you're forced into this situation? You make a change. And that's exactly what the people of Judah did, which brings us to their second problem, though. The people of Judah, their change was they traded their hopes for fears that were now two sizes too big. Basically, the people of Judah wondered... Oh, man, what if the economy never comes back? What if Babylon is the new superpower of our world? What if we can't recover? What if our joy is gone forever? What if God never allows us to go back home? And worst of all, they feared, what if God is not enough? What if God alone is not adequate enough? What if he can't live up to this challenge in our lives? And so like so many people today... What the people of Judah were doing while in captivity, they were playing the what-if game of life. What if? What if? What if? And in playing the what-if game, they landed on a fear 
That was two sizes too big. Listen, the fastest way to defeat our lives is either to hope a wrong hope or to fear a false fear. The best way to defeat ourselves is to embrace a hope that is two sizes too small or a fear two sizes too big. And so anytime our anxiety, anytime our worry causes us to ask ourselves, is God alone enough? Is He sufficient? Is He adequate? It means we are being ruled either by wrong hopes or false fears. Now, if you think about it, this is really nothing new in life. In fact, God's people have struggled with this throughout all the Old Testament. And if truth be told, we still struggle with this today as God's people. Just like the people of Judah, we tend to place our hope in wrong hopes, in our fears, in false fears. And when we do, we almost always begin to question, we begin to ask, is God alone enough? Will God come through in this situation? And that's when we need, and that's kind of when we say, oh man, we need a bigger boat. We need a bigger boat here. Which is precisely why God asked the convicting question in Isaiah 40 to the people of Judah. And by application, he asked this question to you and I today. We can summarize the question of God this way. Notice it, God's question number two. He asked, who is my equal? Who out there is my equal? Look at God's question again in Isaiah 40, verse 25. He says, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal? God is basically asking the people of Judah and us today, man, who is like me out there? Who can hold a candle to me as your God? Like those exiles in Babylon long ago, our lives don't always go the way we wish it would, does it? The marriage does not end up happily ever after. The job of a lifetime does not last even a long time. The son or daughter does not live the way you hoped he or she would live. The tumor does not respond to radiation and chemo, or in my case, you go for a routine checkup and they find a tumor. And then sooner or later, death takes a parent, perhaps takes a spouse, maybe even a children, takes away a loved one, a friend, whatever the case may be. The reality is our life stories, and each of us has a life story, rarely turns out like we hoped it would, like we dreamed it would, like we expected it would. But the art of faith is to not let our stories in the present become the wrong hope that we dream or the false fear that we dread. Why? Because, listen to me, our stories, our circumstances are not God. Our God is larger than any life moment. Our God is larger than any life event or any lifetime. And so to hear God ask us, who is my equal, is to be reminded that God is the bigger boat that we so desperately need to carry us across the seas of life. The question, who is my equal, it reminds us that our God is an awesome God. As Isaiah reminds us in verse 28, our God, he says, is the everlasting God, the Lord, 
the creator of the ends of the earth, who neither faints nor is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. But let's be honest here, including myself. Listen, we tend to forget just how awesome our God really is. And it's easy to do when you're focused on your life or your circumstances in the situation that you're in. And when you see with human eyes. We tend to forget this. Man, I have an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. We tend to forget God's supremacy over all that has been, is now, or shall ever be. But the prophet Isaiah, this is what I love about the book of Isaiah. He knew all about the awesomeness of God. As we said in our series, The Invitation, Isaiah saw the greatness of God in a vision back in Isaiah 6. And so if anyone knew about the awesomeness of God, listen, it was this prophet Isaiah that God used to communicate this message to the people of Judah. In fact, Isaiah gives us one of the greatest descriptions about our awesome God. I love this description that he gives in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 40. Look what it says. Go to your Bibles and look, or it's in your notes there. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Look what he says about God. He says, behold. In other words, look. Man, don't just, don't just glance at it. Meditate upon this. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold. His reward is with him and his work before him. He will flead his flock, in verse 11, like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Now, let me ask you a question. Not God's question, my question. Which God do you know? What we just read here, which God do you know? You know, most people know either the God of verse 10... Or they know the God of verse 11. But here's the great thing. Both are true and both are awesome. Both are powerful. In fact, you could describe it like this. God has two arms. Uh, Isaiah refers in verse 10, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand in his arm. So think of it in the way Isaiah describes it. God has two arms. And notice this in your notes. One arm is powerful. Winning the battle as a mighty ruler. And so do you know the God who kind of rolls up his sleeves, he bears his powerful arm, and he wins the battle? Psalm chapter 98, verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. So have you experienced the strong arm of God? If so, great. But if that's all you know about God, then be gripped by God's other arm. Notice this. While one arm is powerful, God's other arm is gentle. It's gentle, caring for the weak as a loving shepherd. In other words, God provides special treatment for special needs in our lives. This tender arm of God reminds us of His unique and His personal care for us. And so think of God in this way. He is a mighty ruler, and yet He is a loving shepherd. And yet He is one awesome God. No wonder He comes to us today and He asks, Hey, who is my equal? 
Now, what's your natural response when you think about just how awesome our God is? If you're like most people, you may be thinking, oh man, I can't possibly matter to such an awesome God. Well, this is what the people in Isaiah's day thought too. Notice what they were saying in verse 21. I mean, verse 27. Look at it. In verse 27, they're crying out to God, Hey, my way is hidden from the Lord. And my just claim is passed over by my God. In other words, they were crying out and they were saying, God is too big to care about me and my problems in life. He's not interested in what I need. Who am I to such an awesome God? Have you ever thought of that about yourself in relation to God? Sure, we all have. And that's why we not only need to be gripped by God's awesomeness, but we also need to get a grip on God's awesomeness. You say, well, what does this mean? Well, it means this, and it's coming up on the screen in your notes. It means that God is bigger than we imagine. Yes, he is awesome, but he's also awesome in another way. He is closer than we think. God is bigger than we imagine, yet closer than we think. In other words, we need to be gripped by the truth that God is bigger than we can ever imagine. God is completely beyond us and above us. He is completely not like us. God is bigger and more powerful and more awesome than we can ever imagine. But we also need to get a grip on the truth that God is closer than we think. This aspect of God is kind of like the little sticker on the passenger or the driver's side of, your, of the mirror of your car that reads, Objects in this mirror are closer than they appear. You know what I'm talking about? And the same is true with God. The Bible teaches that in spite of the awesomeness of God, He is very near to each of us. Like two towers that can never be toppled, God is both bigger than I imagine, and He's closer than I think. In other words, one arm of God is powerful, and He's winning the battle as a mighty ruler on our behalf. And the other arm of God is gentle, and He's caring for the weak as a loving shepherd. And this ought to bring a confidence within us as His people. It ought to bring a comfort to our lives as God's children. And that's why Isaiah insists the people stop saying, that they stop crying out, I don't matter to God. He doesn't care about me because it wasn't true. Isaiah's like, hey, time out, folks. Time out here. Everybody knock off the whining and saying stuff that isn't true about God. Listen, you may be here this morning and you may feel like God has forgotten all about you. And the circumstances that you're presently in may even lead you to doubt Him. But let me encourage you, God has not forgotten you. That's why you've got to love what Isaiah asks in verse 28 to the people of Judah. Have you not known? Listen, have you, have you not heard about this God? Isaiah is saying, come on. Come on, Judah. Come on, church, today. Get a grip on the awesomeness of God. Yes, he's bigger than you imagine, but God is a mighty ruler. And yes, he's closer than you think. He is a loving shepherd. So what does all this mean for us today? How do we apply this to our own lives right now 
with where we're living 2013? Well, God's question, if we allow it to, it confronts us with our own need in life. Which brings us to our third point, our need. And our need is pretty simple. It's to put our hope in God. It's to put our hope in God. Our greatest need is to look up and see the supremacy of God and the sufficiency of God. As Isaiah says in verse 26, look at it. He says, lift up your eyes on high. Man, if we just practice that, it would do a world of good. If we would just lift up our eyes off of the TV, off the news, off the internet of the news we're reading and seeing, if we would just lift up our eyes, not in denial of the world's problems, not in denial of our own problems, but if we would lift up our eyes off the chaos, I mean, just think of two weeks ago, the bombings in, in uh, Boston, the explosion in Texas, and then you have your own personal issues. If we, not to deny them, but to lift our eyes off of them onto the Most High. Listen, as long as you look at your problems, you're not looking at God. And when you look at your problems, they will always seem too big for you to handle. Because in the last analysis, you know what? They are. They are. After all, who among us is equal to the truly daunting issues of life. We are not equal to the death of a loved one. We are not equal to divorce. We are not equal to a loss of a career. We are not equal to a financial setback. We are not equal to a family in turmoil. We are not equal to parents that are growing old. And we're now caring for them. None of us is equal to these things. So who is sufficient for these things? These things come, and we we try to find ways to cope with them, but we are not equal to them. Only God is sufficient for these things. As one pastor wrote, it is not the magnitude of my problems that matter. It is the magnitude of my God that makes a difference. So let me offer two points of application from this question that God asked us today. The first application point is this. God knows you. Are you thankful for that? God knows you. He has not forgotten you. He knows you. Therefore, the application is to turn to Him in faith. He is the bigger boat we so desperately need. But what do we do? So often we first turn to anyone and anyone and anything except God. Look what Isaiah writes again in verse 26. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. He's talking about the stars now in the universe, Isaiah is, who brings out their host by number. He, that is God, calls them all by name. Man, let that blow your mind. By the greatness of his might and strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Astronomers tell us that our sun is so large that a million planet Earths could fit inside of it. And yet that's just one of the uncounted billions of stars that we see scattered across the heavens. You ever go outside the city when you can really see the stars? And you're just like, whoa. They're so bright. You can see them. 
blow me away. How did all this come to be? A result of sheer accident or chance? If you watch Discovery Channel, they'll tell you that. But no, no way. Not only did God create all these things from nothing in the beginning, but God says, and I'm paraphrasing here, listen, I keep the world moving. I cause the seasons to move and the earth to turn. I keep every star in the heavens in its place and every living thing on this earth in its place just as I designed it. He, in essence, says, without me, it would all fall apart in a moment. And then God reminds us, don't think for a moment that in the midst of all this, I have somehow forgotten about you, my creation. I never become worn out. I never become forgetful. I know you. I created you. I keep you alive. I know all things, and I certainly know everything about your life. As Jesus told his disciples and reminded them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, about our God, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. And some of you are making that an easier job for God than others. That's the case with myself. My youngest child reminds me of that here lately. But even our hairs are numbered by God. That's how much care he has for us. How he knows us. So turn to God in faith. He knows you and he knows every detail of your life. The second point of application is this. God only knows you, but he cares for you. He takes his knowing of you to another level. He doesn't just know you and then walk away from you. He knows you and he cares for you. So rely on him for strength. Look what Isaiah writes about our God in verse 29. It says, He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. In other words, when you don't have the strength to push through another day, God takes his enormous power and gives it away to the weary and weak. Woohoo, right? God gives his power to the very people who thought they had enough strength to cope in life. And so they relied on that strength. And then they ran out of gas. And it's not just if only I were a little younger, if only I were a little stronger, I could handle this. Look what Isaiah says in verse 30. Man, he brings us all into the same boat. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. In other words, Isaiah is making it very clear that everyone needs God. Even the strongest and youngest eventually lose heart and grow weary. You may be wondering, well, man, how much power does God have to give? Well, get a grip on this. The Lord of the universe, get this, has more power than you've got problems. The Lord of the universe has more power than you've got problems, so don't worry about it. God does not change as we do. His power does not decrease over time. As Isaiah reminds us in verse 28, the everlasting God neither faints nor is weary like we do. So remember, our God has more power than you've got problems, and he will give that power in our weakness. And you say, whoa, man, man, I need some of that power and strength. I want some of that. How do I get it? God, bring it on. How do I get this power and strength from God? Well, notice the last verse. Here's God's promise in verse 31. He says, but those who what? But those who what? 
Wait, so many translations may say hope. But those who wait or hope on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, if we try to live life in our own strength, we will faint and fall. And for some, you've been there and done that. But Isaiah says, God's strength is freely reserved for those who wait. Please notice, his strength is not reserved for those who rush ahead, who finagle their way through life, who try to scramble or scratch till they got an ulcer, a migraine, high blood pressure, and two strokes. No, God's promise of strength is reserved for those who wait. So the obvious question becomes, well, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, this Hebrew word for wait, it's a really interesting word here. And it doesn't mean what we typically think of the word wait. See, for us, to wait means to kind of plop down on my couch and just sit there and wait. Let time pass by. That's not the idea here of wait on the Lord. All right? The word wait here means to twist or stretch in order to make something strong. Think of how a rope is made. You ever seen on the, uh, some of those channels, cable channels, like how it's made? And you watch how a rope is made, and they take all these little strands, they begin to twist them and stretch them. And they take what is one little strand, which you could, you could pull that apart really easy. But when you take millions of those little strands, and you begin to weave them and stretch them together, all of a sudden you have a rope that is really, really strong. That's what this word weight means. In other words, here's the application. Here's how it means to us applicationally. We gain strength when we wait on the Lord and allow Him to wrap His power around our measly little strands of weakness. The word wait does not suggest killing time or sitting around doing nothing. Waiting on the Lord here implies placing our complete dependence on God. It's the idea of allowing Him to decide the terms. It's declaring our hope in God alone. I trust you for this. My faith is in you, Lord, not in what I can do, not what the government's got to do for me or somebody else is going to do for me. This kind of waiting is perhaps the hardest discipline of the Christian life, and yet waiting on the Lord is the highest expression of our faith. It's a faith that says, I know God is going to resolve this situation. I may not know how. In fact, I don't know how, and I don't know when, but I know He's going to do it. I'm not giving up. I'm waiting on Him. I'm trusting Him. And so waiting is not passive. It's active because you believe God is at work in the midst of your crisis, even though you can't see it at the moment. And that's the way God works most of the time. Most of the time, He works behind the scenes, and we don't necessarily see it at the moment. All we focus on, we tend to focus on the immediate problem at hand. But to trust in the Lord is to know, you know what, even though I don't see it with my human eyes, I know God is working. 
and he's working these things out for his glory ultimately and for the good of my life and for others. Not necessarily the good according to what I want and expect, but what he thinks is best for me. This is God's amazing promise. If you're willing to give up your frantic efforts and wait on God, God says this, that you will be able to renew or literally exchange your worn out strength for new strength. His strength. So much so that you will be able to mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. How many of you would like that? I'd say our God is worth waiting on. Amen? I'd say our God is an awesome God, wouldn't you? God is still asking us today, who is my equal? And the answer is still the same. No one is. No one. So if you find yourself this morning drowning in wrong hopes and false fears, let me encourage you to put your hope in our awesome God. You say, how do I put my hope in an awesome God? Listen, you turn to Him in faith and you rely on Him for your strength. Listen, ask God, let God embrace you in His arms as a mighty ruler and a loving shepherd because that's what He wants to do for you. Let's pray. As the praise team comes I, and we come to our response time, I want to encourage you to, to reflect and ponder on this message, on this question that God asked, and to make it personal by reflecting on the questions at the end of your notes there. You'll notice there it says, you know, just some three questions and some application points. And while the praise team sings, would you ponder on this? Would you, would you honestly go before God in prayer and, and answer these questions and put into practice these answers? Respond to Him. Whatever you're facing right now, take it to God as your awesome God, as a mighty ruler, and as your loving shepherd. As the praise team sings, will you respond?